You know, um, before we get started, I just want to honor and recognize Mark. You know, as he is leading us uh, through this church and just the servant-hearted attitude that is represented and the stories I know of impact that God continues to have through this man, I just, I just want to take a moment and honor him. And so would you join me in giving this guy a hand for just the way that he faithfully serves? We are so honored. I'm so honored to, to teach alongside Mark and just so blessed to be a part of what God is doing here at Fellowship. You know, guys, as I was uh, thinking about our time together in God's Word, um, I was reminded that a couple weeks ago, in order to celebrate Karsten's birthday, we decided that we would go on a family trip to Atlanta because he wanted to go check out the birthplace of his be- favorite beverage of choice, Coca-Cola. And it, don't get me wrong, the Coke Museum was cool, but there was one thing along the way that surprised us. We didn't expect to have so much fun. We heard rumors of this in the Pacific Northwest, but we were waiting to see it in all of its glory. And you could see it coming from a hundred miles away. The image of this little beaver named Bucky. You know, the thing about Bucky's is uh, you see these billboards as you make your way down the highway. I think the furthest one I saw was about 120 miles away that Bucky the Beaver lie in front of us. The boys had seen something about Bucky Beaver on YouTube. And so as we're driving down the highway, we start to see these billboards. I start getting the tirade of questions. Dad, are we there yet? I don't know. Check the billboards. How far does it say? And we're watching these billboards and we're getting closer and closer. And again, Dad, are we there yet? I don't know. Dad, what's Bucky's like? I don't know. (laughs) I've never been to a Bucky's myself. And when we finally pull into this parking lot and we see the beautiful glory of this parking lot, of this gas station and grocery store all sandwiched in one, we saw the coolers with the kolaches, you know, the fudge stand. It's like we have come to something beautiful. And you know, this week, as I sat down to prepare this passage, I realized that in so many ways, the question that I want to ask when I come to a text like this is, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And so often as I was reading this passage again and again, I found myself asking the question, okay, are we getting close? Are we there yet? As as this passage begins to lay out some of the visions and futures for the final moments of human history, I find myself coming back again and again to, are we there yet? But what if that's not the right question? What if there is something even more profound and deep going on in this passage? And I'm convinced that there is. And as we come to a text that at first level may seem really weird and odd, the reality is it speaks a truth that is so profound that as it makes its way into our hearts, it radically changes our perspective in life. And so if you have your Bible, let's just dive right in. Uh, We're going to look at Daniel chapter 8. We'll read verses 1 to 14 uh, together. The words will be up on the screen uh, if you don't have a Bible. But as we begin, can we pray as we come before God's word? Jesus, this week, um, as I've been sitting in this text, I've just been reminded that preaching on a passage like this is trying to finger paint a Picasso. Lord, um, These are beautiful mysteries that you have faithfully proven in history and yet point us to a time that is to come. And Lord, we we just humbly come before you and say that, God, you are the God of all mystery. You are the God of all things that we don't understand. And by your grace, you reveal them to your people. 
And so, Lord, as we look at your word today, would you open our hearts? Would you guide us? Would you lead us? Would you be glorified? In your name we pray. Amen? All right, let's read together. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal, and raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal, and it had two horns. And both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came up from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him with his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram, and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he was cast down to the ground, and the goat trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. Instead of it came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. But one of them, a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars threw it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering? The transgression that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. To be honest with you, when I read these words, the tune that was in the back of my head is Old MacDonald. You know, Old MacDonald had a farm, E-I-E-I-O. And there's a ram, and there's a goat, and yet, how are these two beings connected? And it is the beautiful mystery of what we find as we come to a passage like Daniel. If you're just joining us this weekend, well, we are in the midst of a series in the book of Daniel that we're calling Daniel the Unshakable Kingdom. Throughout this series, we've been looking at these beautiful passages and stories of Daniel and the way in which this man who existed as one of the Jewish royal house, finds himself in a place where he's carried off off into captivity in Babylon. As he's in Babylon, he's sexually exploited, human trafficked, a place in which it seems like everything of how life was supposed to go according to plan veers dangerously off course. And yet, as we come to these stories of Daniel, we see God show up again and again and again to speak his powerful and beautiful truth through this prophet. 
And yet, as we come to this passage today, as we come to these images, we're reminded again of the central theme of the book of Daniel, this central reality that in all, God's above all. And you know, the thing about that reality is it doesn't just extend into the moments of human history and into the present. It extends into that which is yet to come. And it's here that I believe Daniel, through this vision, draws us to a take-home truth, a very important principle for us to consider as we look at a text like this. And it's simply this, that in life, though we have pain and difficulty, God puts a limit to the evil he allows. And there is coming a day when he is going to put it all to an end. And as this passage unfolds, it gives us some beautiful pictures and images of God's plan and intention for humanity. Can I tell you, as a student, both of history and scripture, I sat at this text this week and marveled at the brilliance of our God. Just his intention, his purpose, his plan, his love, his goodness are on such powerful display in a text like this. And the way in which he has shown his faithfulness again and again and again. And so let's dive right in. And so to do that, I think it's important to place this passage within the larger flow of the book of Daniel. You might remember for the last several weeks, uh, we've been looking at this thing that we've been calling calling a chiasm, where Daniel has been putting passages side by side in order to draw emphasis. A section running uh, from the middle part of chapter 3 all the way through chapter 7 has been in Aramaic. As we come to this text, we switch back into the Hebrew. Uh, This declaration, this uh, beginning of a direct word to the people of God is they find themselves in the midst of captivity. And so uh, we ask the question, what exactly did Daniel see? Well, we're told that is uh, he's looking out over these sections of Babylon. He sees a few creatures. So the first creature that he sees is a ram with two great horns. Uh, th- this ram is so great in power that it literally charges down from the east, westward, northward, and southward so that no beast can stand before it. In fact, so great is the picture of its power that Daniel describes that he did as he pleased and he became great. But then in verse 5, we're interested, we're introduced to a second beast. And as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the whole earth without touching the ground. And this goat has one huge conspicuous horn. And he becomes so angry with the ram that he charges at it. And he strikes the ram and breaks into two pieces the two horns of the ram. But then we learn in verse 8 that this goat becomes exceedingly great, its power seemingly stretching across the whole world. And yet when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead, four smaller horns come up in its place. But it's one of those smaller horns that gains particular attention, a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. And what begins to happen is this small horn engages in battle uh, against all the regions of the country, but uh, of the known world, but especially towards the glorious land, a name for Israel. 
And it becomes great, even as great as the prince of hosts. And the inevitable result is that he takes away the burnt offering from within the sanctuary. You know, one of the things that I find so telling is I read these verses. Did you catch the dialogue that happens even in heaven in verse 13? And therein I heard a holy one say to another, for how long is this going to happen? How long? I mean, I, as I read this, I just I hear this heartbreak among the angelic hosts. How long is God going to allow these things to happen? And then we get this very interesting answer in verse 14. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be returned to its rightful state. You have it all figured out. You know what all this means, right? No, these are, these are profound mysteries. You know, when we come to prophetic passages like this, uh, I always come um, with this desire to know more than what the text actually says. And one of the humble realities that I have to come to in a passage like this are truths that I'm reminded of and that God gives to the ancient Israelites in the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 29, 29. And it says simply this, that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Can I tell you that the interpretive principle that I take from this passage is this, that we can understand what Scripture reveals about the future, and at the same time, we have to hold what it doesn't as mystery. Can I tell you, as I look across the history of theology and how we've grown in our understanding of God's word, there are times that we get into a lot of trouble when we try and peek behind the curtain and say more than what God does. And one of the humble realities that we have to come back to again and again is simply coming back with humility and saying, look, this is what God has said. This is what he has revealed for us. And it is enough. It is to tell us enough about what the future will hold. And so as we begin, I think one of the most important things we can simply do is ask the question then, what does Scripture say about what all of this means? You know, if you look with me in verse 15, we're told that there Daniel, when he had seen the vision, sought to understand it. Daniel obviously is scratching his head saying, okay, a goat, a ram, uh, what does all of this mean? And despite all of his attempts to figure it out in his own power, it takes an angel of the Lord to come to Daniel and to tell him the meaning of what he's just seen. In fact, not only any angel. If you look with me in verse 16, and I heard a man's voice, and it spoke to me on the banks of the Eli, and it called out, Gavrael, or Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Gabriel. You think where we hear that name in other places in Scripture? This is the same angel that will come to Mary and to Zechariah in the temple and declare the coming of Christ. This angel is being sent by God in order to make Daniel understand the meaning of this vision. And the statement that the angel makes is simply this. Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. In fact, in verse 19, we find, uh, verses 18 and 19, we find um, some guidelines that I think are so helpful in helping us understand uh, what this says. Because he says, understand that these things 
are for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face towards the ground. But he touched me and made me to stand up. And he said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. Now, as we understand what these verses mean, I think there are two words that we have to grapple with in a passage like this. The first is, when it talks about what is the meaning of the end, when it talks about the end. You know, if you look at scholars, and as we'll see as we make our way through the passage and the interpretation that Daniel is given, there is a sense in which it will take place in near history, and there is a sense in which we look forward to a time that is to come, when that passage uh, will find its fullest expression. The way scholars often describe this is there is a near literal and a far typical fulfillment. Um, If we had more time, I would love to dive into the whole concept of types and how those play out in human history. It is a great study if you'd like to look into that on your own Um, or come catch me sometime. I'd love to geek out with you and, and, and talk a little bit about what some of those mean. But the point is, uh, we're going to see a fulfillment both in near literal history and yet one that is to come. But when it talks about the latter end of the indignation, what does that mean? This word indignation in the Hebrew uh, could be understood as scolding. It's, it, it, it's a time of uh, punishment and response for bad behavior. You know, if I was going to put Ryan's paraphrase on the Hebrew word, I would use the word grounding. You know, when the later time of the grounding will be fulfilled. It's a recognition that because of her sinfulness, because of her rejection, because of her commitment to follow after the other gods of the ancient world, Israel found herself in a place of judgment. But God is not a God who is going to hold that against her forever. There is coming a time when he is going to redeem and transform humanity. But all of this plays out in the context of God's judgment against the nation of Israel. So how does a sheep and a goat and a horn play into that? Well, in verse 20, we begin to get the interpretation. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, literally Darius and Cyrus. Interestingly enough, remember the timing of when this vision is being given. It is in the reign of of King Belshazzar, which means the the captivity of the Babylonian empire that we see with the handwriting on the wall, that hasn't taken place yet. In fact, Babylon isn't even mentioned as a player within this vision. It predicts that one is coming who is going to overthrow Babylon. And because of that uh, occupation, because of that overthrow, Daniel will find himself under the leadership of another kingdom. And then we learn in verse 21 that the goat is the king of Greece. And the gray horn between its two eyes is the first king. Does anybody know who that king is? Very prominent figure in world history. Any guesses? And it's up on the screen. (laughs) Flabbernabbit. Ah. Thank you. You're brilliant, dude. How did you know that? Amazing. Yes, it's Alexander the Great. But if you study the life of Alexander the Great, one of the things that you'll discover is that when Alexander the Great is at the height of his power in 323 BC, he catches malaria and dies suddenly. Because of that, four generals rise up in his place 
uh, to try and rule the sections of, of the Greek Empire, but none of them are able to come to the same level of prominence and power that Alexander the Great did. But here's the thing. Among those four generals, there becomes one in particular uh, that is important in the history of the nation of Israel. Uh, We get this description of him. As for the horn that was broken in place of it, four other kingdoms shall arise from his nation, not with this power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. In other words, in this description, one of the generals of Alexander the Great that plays particular importance in our understanding of this passage is one who is known as Antiochus Epiphanius IV, a Seleucid ruler. He comes uh, much after Alexander the Great, and yet uh, he begins to commit a series of atrocities and acts that literally leave us speechless at his rebellion against God and the destructive effects that he causes against the people of Israel. By the way, much of what we'll talk about is recorded in Josephus' work, The Jewish Wars. If, if you're a student of history at all, I strongly encourage you to pick up a copy of that. It is fascinating. It will tell you so much about the history that takes place between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. And in that, he records the effects and the impacts of Antiochus. Antiochus leads a conquest and overthrows Ptolemy VI of Egypt. And when he does that, he turns his face towards the north and begins an invasion into Israel. Particularly, he leads a devastating conquest against the city of Jerusalem and begins to set up within the city altars to Zeus and the other Greek gods in the city. In fact, as a part of that occupation, there are a number of key dates that are very important to recognize. The first is that in September of 171 BC, he begins that occupation, and that occupation begins with the brutal slaughtering of the high priest. But perhaps the most devastating moment is on December 16th of 167 BC, when Antiochus, in order to rededicate the temple to Zeus, takes a pig, one of the most unclean animals in Jewish history and law, and sacrifices it in the Holy of Holies, utterly defiling the temple. In fact, that occupation would continue until December of 165 BC, when a a group of Jewish uh, royals decided to lead a conquest against him And to reclaim the temple in the city of Jerusalem, a family known as the Maccabees. And for eight days, they rededicate and reconsecrate the temple. And do you know what that celebration is known as? Hanukkah. Hanukkah. The the celebration of Hanukkah and the Jewish faith comes back to this idea of the rededication of the temple. And here is the brilliance and beauty of who God is. Did you notice that earlier in the passage, it said that the temple would be occupied for 2,300 evenings and mornings. According to the rough calculations, based on those dates beginning at the occupation of the temple and the days in which the Maccabeans liberated, it comes out to about 6.3 years, or 2,300 days. 
Think about this for a second. God, hundreds of years before, though he knew that this judgment would come against the nation of Israel, also had a plan in motion to redeem and transform and rededicate and consecrate his temple. And I just sat this week marveling at the goodness and the mercy and the compassion and love of God. But here's the thing. Antiochus doesn't fully fit the bill for the description of the ruler that we find here. And it's because of that that scholars recognize that there is another sense in which we look forward to the appearance of a shadowy character on the scene that will lead a brutal conquest against the people of God and even try to go toe-to-toe with God himself. And it's from this passage and others that we are introduced to a shadowy figure that we know as the Antichrist. And oftentimes when we come to this discussion of the Antichrist, as we look forward to this future fulfillment, one of the most logical questions that we can ask is, well, who is he? Who is he? I have a dear friend, a relative actually, that we have had many discussions about whether or not the Antichrist is going to come from Romania. And I have to lovingly remind them, that's left behind, not the scripture. <laughs> and, and the reality is, we often want to run the mysteries of, okay, who is this shadowy figure that's going to appear in human history? And the answer is, we don't know. We don't know. In fact, I'll be honest, I have watched in recent history as people claim this person or that person is the Antichrist, often more on the basis of political affiliation than theological alignment. And it's tragic. Because this figure, when he shows up on the scene, there's going to be no mistake of who he is. Listen to this description in verse 24, that his power will be great, but not by his own power. He will literally be diabolically empowered by the prince of darkness himself. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. And by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper in his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. And without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And I love these next verses. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been hold is true, but seal up this vision, for it refers to many days from now. You know, as I look across human history, I am reminded that there are many people that we could refer to as the Antichrist. I think of Caesar, of Nero, of Hitler, that have led brutal onslaughts against the nation of Israel and God's people. And I'm reminded that they all pale in comparison with the one that will come. But the beautiful promise that we have in this text is that he's not given full reign. He's on a leash. 
And there is going to come a time when his power shall be broken and not because of any human hand, not because of the strength of another military power, not because of the cunningness and the wisdom of humanity, not because of anything we bring to the table, but because God himself shows up on the scene and says enough. And he restores humanity as he comes to redeem and save her. And I'll tell you, this week, I just found myself longing for that day. I mean, I think about passages like the one we find in Revelation 22, where we're told that God is going to show up and he is going to wipe away every tear from our eye. That he is going to come and he is going to do away with the pain, the sickness, the death, the loss, the, the rulers and, the, and those that would stand in opposition to the people of God. That he is going to once and for all, in a decisive moment of human history, put things back the way that they were always designed to be. But until that day comes, we are reminded of this beautiful promise and mystery that God is faithful, that God is good, and that God is fulfilling his plans in human history, even at the moments when it seems the darkest. And you know, this week as I, as I sat in that, I was like, God, what am, what am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> like... These things are so marvelous and mysterious. Like, what do, you, what do you do with this? Like, you know, as a pastor, you come to the end of a message and you're like, okay, what's the application point? And as I sat in that, I found myself again and again coming back to these final verses that we find in verse 27. Such a beautiful response. In verse 27, and I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick. For some days, Daniel saw this vision and it literally turned his stomach because he knew how dark these moments would be. In fact, he goes on to say <clears throat> in the later part of verse 27, but I was appalled by the vision and I didn't understand it. Even at the end of all of this, Daniel is saying, I don't understand the ins and the outs of this. And I can tell you after much study of this text, I certainly am no further than Daniel. But what I do know is that God is good. And what I do know is that God has a plan. And did you notice that sandwiched between those two statements of Daniel's emotional experience is the most profound phrase? Then I rose and I went about the king's business. What do you do when you have this cosmic understanding of the end? What do you do when confronted with the realities of the Antichrist? What do you do when the, these mysterious moments in human history are revealed to us? The brilliance of Daniel's response. I went about the king's business. The next day I woke up and decided that even in the context of whatever the future may hold, I made the decision, I will be faithful. I will keep on. I will follow God. And whatever tomorrow may hold, I live in the confidence that he will be there too. Friends, the reality is we can become so anxious about the future that we miss out on the beauty of what God is doing right here, right now. 
And this posture of going about the king's business, this posture of stepping intentionally into what God is doing here and now in the confidence that the same God who started this creation is the same God who will hold us even in the final moments of its existence. That God is a God who is so good and so powerful that he can redeem even the darkest moments of human pain. And so even here, even now, when the world itself seems upended, we can say, God is our refuge and strength, a well-proved help in times of trouble. Therefore, I won't be afraid. And the invitation of this passage is to recognize not the identity of some shadowy cosmic being that will come in the future, but the faithfulness of a God who promises, I am with you. I'm with you on the shores of the Red Sea before I split it wide open. I am with you in those moments that life doesn't make sense. I am with you in times of persecution, loss, suffering, death. In the moments that life itself doesn't go according to plan, you can live with a certain confidence that just as I showed my faithfulness in ordering human history and fulfilling my plans and intentions in the past. Oh, let me tell you, my faithfulness is no less as you look to the future. And so as we look at this text, we marvel at the goodness and the faithfulness of God. You know, to be honest with you, the billboards were nothing compared to how awesome Bucky's was. (laughs) I'm just saying. Like, there really was this moment in which I stood back and just with mouth wide open was like, this place is amazing. As the boys literally split off and go in 10,000 directions, and I'm just like, stay here. Like, we'll go, we'll, we'll see this whole thing together. And as I was thinking about that this week, I was wondering, how much more will my mouth fall open when I see the day when God, once and for all, breaks the power of the evil, the curse, the brokenness that define human existence? Oh, friends, the Antichrist is not the end of the story. Your pain is not the end of the story. Oppressive rulers are not the end of the story. The end of the story is a God who is good and has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And it's in that hope and it's in that strength that we can look at whatever the future may hold and know he's there. He's good. And he will stand above it all. Let's pray. Jesus, I give you praise. Lord, words themselves pale in comparison to the beauty of who you are. How you have shown your faithfulness in history how you have shown your faithfulness in scripture and Lord, how you have shown your faithfulness in my own heart and life. You are worthy. You are worthy. You are so good and faithful and true. 
And Lord, I pray for each of us in this room that we would hold to that truth, not just in the moments when life makes sense, but may it be an anchor to us in the moments that it doesn't. That when life seems to veer off plan, we can live in the certain confidence that you're up to something. You're doing something. And the pain we know will one day come to an end. But I pray for any here today who are in the place of saying, Lord, how long? How long? And they just sense your arms around them, reminding them that, you, that you're there. That there is no end to your walking with them, that there is no end to your presence with them. But you will guide them. You will walk with them all the days of their life, though they may know nothing about it. Oh, Jesus, you are so good. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray today, right upon our hearts, the depth of your power and grace. Free our hearts from anxiety and fear about the future that we may rest in the confidence that you got it. Oh, Lord, be glorified. We pray to the glory of your name. Amen. Let's sing together.